On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Fabian Frank. He is the VP of engineering at AirKit. We're going to be talking about how do you mix your resources between hiring senior, mid-level, junior, you know, even entry-level, and avoid hiring just rock stars and you know, the quote-unquote rock stars and finding just a team of just seniors to come in to help you out, because obviously uh, that's a really hard challenge in any market. Fabian, thanks for being on the podcast and chatting with us. Thank you for having me, Emil. Awesome. So two things, let everyone know what AirKit does at a high level, and then just as a VP of engineering, what are your day-to-day responsibilities? Awesome. So... AirKit is a low-code customer experience automation platform. And now, what does that actually mean in practice for you, especially if you're an engineer listening in? You know, you've done a lot of programming, you're familiar with Java, etc. And I like to sometimes call AirKit Visual Basic for the web. It makes it really easy to get started, just, you know, like in the golden days of uh, Windows developer tools and Visual Basic, where you were able to you know, pull up a form, add some UI elements to it, collect some data and store it. And you wouldn't have to know the inner uh, levels of C and the kernel. And AirKit is similar in that sense that you don't have to start, you know, with a React app, something like Create React app, where you get a giant tool chain and you have a lot of dependencies to update and maintain, etc. And you sort of spend a lot of time serving your technology. With AirKit, you can focus on your business problem right away, which means we have a graphical builder where you can build a GUI and then you can, you know, connect your input fields to variables and then you can connect your buttons to what we call data flows to post the data to an API. And then you can also with one click deploy your application and make it available at a URL. So all the details of, you know, CDN, the React, Angular, et cetera, tool chain, all the complexities of modern SPAs are being taken care of for you, the AirKit platform, you know, updates those dependencies under the hood, et cetera. So you can uh, have a much faster time to market and then also a lower maintenance cost overall. And you can actually focus on solving your business problem as opposed to maintaining a technology stack just to, you know, get something on the web. Awesome. Sounds like an exciting product. Uh, we could probably spend a whole episode uh, chatting about the, the problems you guys are solving. Absolutely. We have some really interesting things to work on, to be honest. You know, we have uh, our own uh, language that we call AirScript, for example, which what we strive for is sort of the complexity of an Excel formula. So it's expression-based, just like Excel formulas are. There are no statements like an if statement. You know, everything returns a value. So there's an if method, not an if statement. But anyways, um, we could go deeper on that. But that's just to show sort of some of the interesting problems. Absolutely. And then I guess as the VP of engineering, what part of that is uh, falls on your plate? So my role is focused on growing and scaling the engineering organization. And what that means is, you know, we started now four and a half years ago with less than 10 people, you know, prototyping our product and we hired along the way. And I'm sure we'll talk about that journey and how we hire the right people later in the episode, but to sort of like jump forward to right now. My role right now involves a lot of recruiting and then collaborating very closely with product and design to scale how we build software from, you know, a 10 person team to a 30 to a 50 to a hundred person team where obviously, you know, the more people you have, the more you need to coordinate and how do we stay efficient while we grow? 
is a big focus of my role. And then also when it comes to, you know, testing strategy, our infrastructure, making sure we follow best practices, you know, we have the right monitoring and telemetry in place. We have the right alerting in place that we know what's going on in our stack, making sure we pick the right technologies, all that stuff. And frankly, now we're also at a scale where picking the right technologies from my perspective means picking the right people that will then pick the right technologies. Absolutely. I guess yeah, just that's a good segue into the topic, which really is, you know, most engineering leaders that I work with obviously want to hire the strongest talent. Everyone wants the, I hate the term rock star, but they want the most optimal talent they can find for their team, for their needs. And the challenge is everyone wants the optimal level hire. And can you build a team, you know, that has the flexibility that isn't just built on the best talent? Obviously you want the best talent, but maybe sometimes seniority level, experience level, you know, where somebody can grow into all impact. But obviously if your team isn't, able to support that and you need you have specific needs it becomes a little bit harder to hire against a roadmap so i guess you know at the top level when we're you know looking at this question of you know being able to hire not maybe at the level of seniority that you're targeting bring somebody in who's a little bit more maybe mid-level junior whatever it is when you're starting to look at those trade-offs as an engineering leader like what do you start thinking about yeah and i think you actually called out an interesting difference here that I want to just highlight so that it's not lost, which is you set the best talent and you also set seniority. And those two, it's easy to kind of get caught up in them meaning the same, but actually to me, they mean two different things. Seniority is, you know, how much time have you spent in the industry, in the problem domain? Maybe have you led a team before? Things like this. Whereas the best talent, I think you can think of the best senior engineer, the best mid-career engineer, the best college graduate. So I think nobody will ever tell you, now that I've defined it that way, that they are not trying to hire the best talent, but you need to hire the right mix of talent. So to me, that means that you know at the very beginning, you probably start with people that you know from your network that are generalists because you don't know exactly yet what you'll be doing and how much of you know what you'll be doing and you need people that are flexible and that you know sort of the person that prides themselves and hey you know give me two weeks i'll learn that language i'll learn that framework are the people that you're looking for and then as you grow right you'll probably realize oh we're doing a lot of kotlin or we're doing a lot of postgres and the desire emerges that you know you want like a senior expert there so you'll make some of those hires. But at the same time, you also just have a lot of product to build, especially as a new company. And, you know, when I think back about myself, when I was coming out of college and, and joining Yahoo, I wanted to write a lot of code. I wanted to build a lot of stuff. And that's a mindset that's also really important to have in a startup, obviously. So we actually started hiring college graduates after our first year already. We had a fairly senior founding team and we wanted to add early career colleagues to our mix uh, right away. And that uh, actually turned out very successful for us. If you go to our blog, airkit.com slash blog, you can see that college graduates that joined us, you know, a year or two into the job, they were writing blog posts about pieces of the platform that they built, etc. So really having that mix right from the beginning was important to us. And then also, once you do that, 
you need to keep an eye on, you know, how much time do you spend mentoring versus how much time do you still have for people to do their own coding, et cetera, so that you neither overburden the people that are mentoring, nor, you know, do you just have only senior people in your company. And for us, uh, that's worked out really well. Because another thing that comes up a lot when you recruit senior people is that there's a desire to grow as a leader and to mentor. So having mid-career and junior people on your team also creates that opportunity. And sort of the flip side of that coin is the junior people that you are interviewing that are focused on their career growth, that are hungry, which are the people that you want to hire, they will ask you, who is there at Aircade or you know your company? that can help me grow, that can mentor me, that can explain things to me. So it really is that if you get that mix right, the different groups of people will support each other. I guess just a step back, and I think a lot of that's interesting to unpack. One maybe thing in there about uh, early stage startups, obviously they need to hire engineers. I, I want to use the word scrappy just because uh, I, I don't know how we want to go, but scrappy, everyone has a notion of what scrappy is. But they want to hire scrappy engineers. They can dig into anything, go figure it out. Just, you know, more of the entrepreneurial, I'll, I'll roll up my sleeves. And the company grows. And obviously, you need to hire people. The one thing I've noticed is sometimes you get these tribal engineering roles because the scrappy engineers built something. The company now is making money off of it. It's now a way that things are done and built that maybe is not as industry ideal. So you have to go back and hire somebody to come in to help extend the platform. But if you're going to maintain some of the code base that's written, that scrappy code base, then you need people that might be a little bit more experienced in navigating less than optimal code or less than, you know, I'll just keep the word optimal. And then all of a sudden that puts a little bit of hiring pressure on your team and who you can bring in. That limitation itself becomes an obstacle. I guess when you look at that situation, just you know, generally speaking, obviously, what are some of the choices that you face? Obviously, you maintain it, you go back and look at it, you hire people to come in and rebuild it because obviously your team mix is going to change with that decision. Yeah, I think the skill you are zeroing in on is reading code and understanding an existing code base because a lot of times if you engage with a code base in a company that's existed for a while, you will see there's sort of like different generations of people added different modules or different layers to the onion, etc. So when you are hiring your more experienced people, you want to make sure that they understand how to, you know, dive into an existing code base, read the code, debug it, step through it to understand what's going on and also tease out sort of maybe the intent of, you know, why is the code written that way. And that's the skill that you need. But why do you need that skill? And I think the reason you need it is that at the beginning, as you said, you have to be judicious on where you spend your time and you don't know yet maybe which parts of your system or product will be more successful than others. So you want to limit and time box how much time you spend building your V1s. However, I think it's really important that then once things become more successful and you see, you know, this is a lot of customers are using this. We're getting a lot of tickets maybe on a certain part of the system that then you're willing to spend the time to, you know, firm it up, potentially uh, refactor or rewrite parts of the system. That said, I would always advocate for refactoring, be very cautious about rewriting. A lot of times code that has grown complex is complex for a reason. 
But that's a trade-off that we continuously have to make also then between adding new capabilities to the product or, you know, firming up an existing capability. So it, it requires uh, sort of a continuous adjustment. And I think that's also where, you know, I've actually seen people that are, you know, maybe critical about process or that I've, you know, I've worked with them at Salesforce or Yahoo, where they've said, ah, oh, why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do that? Now that they find themselves in this environment of a growing company, they are saying, hey, yeah, we should label our tickets with, you know, the component that they belong to, because how else are we going to know that, you know, we should focus on this component this quarter to eliminate a few common pain points. So always making sure, you know, you have actionable data really helps with that. Absolutely. And I guess when you're looking at, you know, generally talking about code bases that people have to come in and build off of and support and whatnot. When you find yourself in the situation where, you know, obviously be able to read the code, tease out the intent, you know, if documentation is less than ideal and, you know, when is documentation perfect? It's, it's, it's we all strive for it, but it's, it's hard to get to. Mm-hmm. Can you bring somebody in more junior, mid level, do you think, to help with some of that baseline and build their skill up and get them ramped up? Obviously, again, you know, we're trying to figure out is the environment, how can you structure an environment where you don't have to have the most senior that you can, you know, like you said, have a steady flow of young, emerging, hungry talent? At the beginning, it is deceptively easy because you will make your first one, two or three junior hires and you'll be excited about it. You'll be focused on it. And also because it's only, you know, one, two or three people, you don't need a process that scales to dozens of people. So what you can do is, you know, sit down with them, whiteboard with them, et cetera, and it'll go really well. However, as you add more people faster and your growth accelerates, you no longer have the luxury of, you know, sitting down with every new hire for 20 to 30 hours, maybe in the first, you know, two to three months to walk them through and explain all the concepts of your system. So you will want to document more, but at the same time, your product is also still changing a lot, meaning your code base is changing a lot. So like documentation is one more thing you have to keep up to date. And I think we all like, it's almost a meme in our industry that sort of wikis are like right once, never edit, and they go stale, right? So the balance that we try to strike is document the higher level concepts and the things that are fairly ingrained at this point. So at AirKit, that would be things like, you know, we have our IDE, we have our runtime, we have the format that describes our app you know, which is essentially like the compiled program would sort of be the C or Java equivalent. And, uh, you know, how, how these higher level pieces fit together, where are things in the database? Those things you should absolutely document so that people have that world map of, you know, where to go so that they can even, maybe the analogy here would be they can find the countries on the map. But then once you've found, you know, the service or whatever that you need to touch to accomplish something, then it's, probably time to talk to the owner of that service. And I think it always sounds so great when you're talking generically about it, but that then also mirrors to the growth of, you know, your initial team no longer owns all the services. Now your your initial like cohort of the first generation of engineers, they, uh, you know, start to transfer ownership of individual services, maybe for the, you know, how does it all fit together? They still have to come into play a lot, but they can start delegating sort of specific services to sort of the second and third generation of engineers. 
And I think that's also something that's really important for every teammate that's early is, you know, keep checking yourself and asking yourself, should I really be answering this question? Should I really be solving this problem? Or should I, you know, redirect it to the person that we hired to own that service? Interesting. Well, that's an interesting, uh, I guess, dilemma because it's obviously easier sometimes to go tackle it yourself versus delegate. And when you mentioned, you know, it's deceptively easy to hire the first couple of junior, you know, entry level people to come on, give them a bunch of tasks. But part of then somebody's time has to go, you know, you could could spend X amount of hours with this person. That mentorship is going to cost somebody time. But to keep adding at that level means capacity constraint issues, you know. For their productivity, that mentorship piece. And again, sometimes, you know, when you're looking at people who are hiring and they just want that senior level, you know, A player to come in because they don't have the time to mentor somebody, that is that big trade off of, oh, I could bring in a couple of people, throw them and, and really help them ramp up. But then from ramping them up to productivity, you know, product, productively writing code that's being deployed, someone potentially has to help. Absolutely. And I think you need to balance on a project by project basis. Do I focus on long term stability and growth of my engineering organization? Or is this a project where I have to focus on time to market? Say you expect it to make your sales funnel 20%, have 20% less uh, loss at a critical stage. Maybe then you want to put somebody senior on that and you don't want to spend the time to, you know, ramp up other people on this problem because you're like, this is so critical for us. We have to get this out there right away. But then there's also other work that is important and absolutely has to get done, but where you have a little bit more leeway and where you can then focus on the growth of your organization. It's trading off the long-term and the short-term, right? Like if you always optimize for the short-term, the time to market, you'll eventually find that you have five senior people that know everything and you have, you know, everybody you hired after that maybe, you know, is still struggling to ramp up. You don't want to end up in that situation, but you also don't want to, you know, reduce your velocity on shipping products, you know, to almost zero because you're only focusing on, you know, mentoring and coaching and the new people are not ready to ship, you know, at a faster cadence yet. So that's the, the, I guess that becomes the art rather than the science of, you know, needing to hire that senior level person who can come in, solve problems, make impact versus being able to hire probably more readily, more junior mid-level engineers that are going to provide that impact, but they're going to need help. And that balance in the team structure always seems to be very you know, much of a ebb and flow, obviously based on company goals, what the product roadmap looks like. If you're obviously looking at, you know, trying to meet company objectives and, and you're you're trying to forecast out, you know, the team and the growth, like when you're looking at that type of thing, are you starting to plan ahead per hire? You're like, you know what, I have this person I'm gonna bring on who's the senior person, and I need to make sure that I'm going to bring in you know, one or two other type of people in the meantime, allocate some time. Like, How much of the forecasting really can happen versus you know, probably on the back of a napkin, you're doing that, but you know, it's just practically difficult to implement because you got to deliver still. Totally. So when I'm looking at my, you know, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be the org chart, but just who is working on what. 
and you know what features are we building, etc. I definitely in my head already see how you know oh this project we're building a new product area here a few customers will come and and that'll really 6 to 12 months from now that'll be a team not a project so that's definitely uh in my head when i look at you know projects who is working on on what as well as my org chart you know it it wouldn't be a, a shock to my managers to hear that for most of the teams that we have today i sort of have a plan in mind how that team would you know split its ownership area into two teams so that we can continue scaling because also all the product areas that you have there are more users more users means more tickets etc and then also means you know more feature requests and then the areas themselves grow so that's definitely uh, something that i'm doing and and looking ahead for and I think there's also then the balance that comes in between not only senior and junior people, because when you split a team and that team only had one senior person, now you have a very difficult choice to make. Whereas if you have two or three senior engineers on a team, it gets easier. But then now we're also uh, getting into org structure a little bit. So you also start looking ahead of, you know, who do I have on my talent bench where, you know, senior people are sometimes interested in, you know, trying management, going back to management, um, whatever it might be. And then also, you know, do I have to hire managers externally at some point? That will really be determined most of the time also by how deep your bench is. If you have somebody internally that you believe in that wants to, you know, become a manager, that's something that I would always advocate you support because yes, it might take you you know, you might have to invest more in that person than hiring an experienced manager. But at the same time, they already know your stack, they know your technology, they know the people in your company. So they have a huge leg up on that side, even if they don't have the, the management experience yet. So you're also looking at starting to look ahead for that so that you don't, you know, overburden people with a huge number of reports. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're obviously trying to forecast future teams, what they're going to look like. You have this plan, but how obviously you, you don't want to be too reactionary mm -hmm. in your hiring plan. You want to you know be proactive, but you have your day to day. You guys have to deliver. How do you balance looking at that you know roadmap and going? You know, I need to be proactive versus I still have to execute, and I can only plan and move my chess pieces so much. Totally, and it's also important there that you don't go from I hire only generalists to. I hire only for very, very specific roles, meaning specific skills at specific product area, et cetera, et cetera. So not every roadmap update should require you to completely revise your hiring plan, even if you've um, sort of segmented your hiring into maybe front end, back end, and junior, senior. Maybe you have a full stack role in there if you do a lot of Node.js, et cetera. So you don't want to over-specialize right away. You want to keep that, you know, you, you maybe want, want to have something like front-end, back-end um, so that when the product team, you know, instead of wants to invest in different features, your hiring plan still stands. And I think also you need to have that eye across the org sort of once you have those specializations defined, where do I have, what are now... Now that the senior-junior ratio also is no longer across everybody, it's across those specializations. And that will, by the way, also really help your recruiters. Because at the beginning, when you say, oh, I just want to hire great generalists, that's really tough 
for recruiters to go after compared to I'm hiring college graduate front-end engineer and a senior back-end engineer. That's much easier for recruiting to dial in their LinkedIn filters, um, their Boolean searches, etc. So that also helps recruiting a lot. And I apologize, I'm trying to circle back to the question, but I'm not sure anymore. Obviously, it makes sense that you know any update to the roadmap hopefully won't require a massive overhaul or, or a complete alteration of your hiring plan. And I think the interesting thing you, know, you brought up is how this ties into recruiting, because obviously the more thrash there is in how you set up teams, you know, obviously you can only set them up so many ways. You have more full stack, you can actually specialize the teams. But the more you keep that consistent, the recruiting team, even yourself, the network of people that you're growing within those pools will just be leveraged, you know, in a much easier, much more efficient way. Yeah. And I think there it's also really important that as a VP of engineering, you get to know your peers and you develop a filter for, you know, is this something that they are ideating about? Is this something that they want me to execute on right away so that you know, there might be a lot of discussions going on and people might be ideating on strategies, et cetera. But you want to keep things also calm for your team, where again, it's the balance of if you overreact too often, you create whiplash for your team, you revise your plans all the time. If you react too slow, you will have failed to adjust. So finding a balance there is is also important and knowing sort of your your peers and and how they make decisions that you know you only react to things happening, for example, in product when you know you are sure that they've locked in their their plans and they are sure that they want to go ahead with that. Interesting. Yeah, and and I think what's um, you obviously mentioned um, you do also a lot of recruiting on your own, and as you are building out the roadmap and you're aware of the type of team you're trying to build, you know the people you're bringing on hopefully are going to be aware of that. They can go out and help you network, help you build those relationships, and you know as you're trying to grow your team. You know, keeping that consistency means obviously people have similar pools of people to touch. And I think sometimes what I, you know, as a recruiting company, what we see is when people switch how they set up the team, it's chaos because also evaluating talent. And, you know, if you're a front end or, you know, you're back in and now they're hiring more full stack, that requires more people in the process. Are you going from full stack to specialization? All of a sudden, does that person really know what, you know, the front end, senior level should be delivering on you know an assessment so i think some of those things have become a big challenge for most teams yes and for all the you know engineering managers listening i know it's very painful i feel it too but you will have to revise your interview questions your hiring funnel almost every quarter if not you know sometimes even more often because the questions you had at the beginning for generalists they probably no longer tease out Front end or back end. And even if they still tease out the right things, you also want to make hiring easy for yourself. You want to make sure that, you know, the front end candidates get a front end question where they can shine because you're hiring them for front end. It doesn't, you know, necessarily help you to run them through a generic algorithms interview if what you really care about is can they build, you know, React apps. You'll probably see way more success with a question where you actually have a candidate build a React app, since that's what you're hiring them for. Or if you think about specialization, like testing, you're probably way better off. You know, if you see in an hour, can this person write tests in you know the framework that you're using? It's probably much more valuable. And how do they use their IDE? And you know, are they clearly you know up to speed and aware of that compared to you know just 
general questions. So the more you specialize what you're hiring for, you know, the more interview questions you have to come up with because you can no longer reuse all the questions around the same roles. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, like when you're hiring the first QA and no one really is a QA expert and you need to evaluate how a QA person does becomes uh, an interesting test of how you tease those you know requirements and skill sets out. So I think some of those points are really interesting, especially as the company starts maturing and growing. And you know, those are good problems though. Like, I mean, they're good problems. That's, that's why they have you, you, you know, your day is spent mostly uh, recruiting and, and trying to deal with people. When you're actually breaking down your time out of curiosity, how much your time is spent on recruiting versus anything but recruiting, I, I suppose? I would say about 30% of my time, depending on how you count, you know, being in interviews myself, taking opportunistic calls, collaboration, you know, with a recruiting team, work on interview questions. So it's 30, 40% sometimes depends on the week. Awesome, man. Super awesome episode. I'm, I'm glad you were able to come on and, and kind of share your thoughts. I think a lot of people are, you know, this is a topic that a lot of people grasp, but I think it's the art in the engineering management you know, world. And I think uh, hearing different point of views gets uh, people kind of thinking and, and talking. If somebody wants to reach out to you to kind of touch on anything you mentioned, is uh, social media a good way of getting a hold of you? What's a good way of doing that? Definitely. I'm assuming you can find my uh, LinkedIn in the, job, uh, in the podcast description. And then also uh, Fabian at airkit.com. You will reach me as well. And I know, you know, some companies have started to sort of assess, you know, their hiring plans and might be hiring less or even doing staff reductions. So if you're looking for an exciting engineering role, you know, just don't hesitate to hit me up. We might find something at Airkit for you. Or I also know a lot of people in the Bay Area that are building companies and that are always looking for great people. Awesome, man. We'll make sure to include some of those um, in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Again, thanks for being on. I, I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. That's it for this episode. We'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Until then, I always ask for two things. One, if you find the podcast useful, just share it. That's how it's been growing. And I can't thank everyone who does. And secondly, if you want me to find a, a person to speak to a specific topic you're interested in hearing about, let me know what the topic is. I'll do my best to find someone to speak about it. Until next time, goodbye.